Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening. What a wonderful audience. I'm John Stremlaw. I'm uh, Vice President for the Peace Programs here at the Carter Center. The China program uh, is in the peace program along with conflict and resolution and human rights and democracy. And you can read all about it on our webpage at cartercenter.org and I urge you to do so. I wanted to get that out of the way first before I started since people, I forget when I see such a nice audience. I was going to compliment you all on making it through the rain, but now I understand there is an accident on Freedom Parkway, so as people drift in, they'll fill in the seats in the back. You are to be congratulated for signing up so early. The bookings were full uh, a month ago, and that was before the Tibet crisis, and it was before The Economist this week put China on its front cover, talking about the new colonialists, China's role in the world. And of course, it was before the financial crisis where China is our greatest creditor. Its attitude toward Ben Bernanke and company matters to us greatly these days. China seems to be always in the news, and it seems a good moment to sit back and reflect a little bit. And the chance to do this with our Atlanta neighbors is a real pleasure for us. The Carter Center benefits greatly from your engagement and interest in our work. If we can't make sense to you, informed citizens, we're probably not making sense. So your questions will inform our thinking. And to help us reflect on the complexity of China, I am so pleased to have to my right three very distinguished professors. Um, professors are at the top of the academic ladder and uh, most societies, more so the United States, I think, uh, venerates their professors as the repository of great wisdom. If you look up professor in the dictionary, you know it's one who professes, avows, declares. And tonight, um, we're hoping that they will avow and declare and maybe in conflict with one another a little bit about what's happening in China. Uh, we're privileged to have in the audience, um, in addition to our Atlanta neighbors, um, several of our donors who have come to hear Carter Center activities, but also we have here a number of students. And if any of the students um, are at Emory and study under um, Professor uh, Mary Brown Bullock or are at Perimeter College and study under um, Yahweh Liu or are at uh, uh, Georgia State and, and Georgia Tech and, and study under, under uh, Faili Wang, um, take plain notes. And my advice is that whatever the question is on the final exam, and depending who your professor is, just say they made a brilliant comment at the Carter Center, but be sure you get the facts right, that they, so take plenty of notes. And, uh, and I'm glad that you're thinking about China, because uh, when I was your age in college, I didn't think I'd ever see China. I was remarking before we came down here to marry that we thought China would never be open. Uh, China-U.S. relations were normalized 30 years ago in January of 1979, and we're celebrating here at the Carter Center because Jimmy Carter, when he was president, effected that major, major change. And it's interesting that President Carter, when he was a young naval officer, 30 years prior to that, in 1949, 
was one of the last Americans to set foot in China, and certainly in a military uniform, was a young naval officer. Now, that was before the Communist Revolution. And we were chatting a bit, having a conversation among ourselves uh, uh, over supper, that we could not have forecast how much would have happened in the last uh, 30 years. I think most people would say that the most momentous event was the end of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, collapse of the Soviet Union. But in terms of our lives today, I would put my money on the doubling of the global labor force. With China, normalization came reform, economic reform, in very close sequence, followed by India. And the number of workers who were part of the global economy doubled. And the consequences of that for global growth and for the management of resources and for the environment um, are mind-boggling. At the heart of all this lies the subject for tonight. The subject for tonight really is political reform in China. The Carter Center got involved in China 10 years after they started village elections in 1988. In 1998-99, uh, at a time when Yahweh Lu joined the Carter Center, uh, the Carter Center was invited in by the Chinese to take a look and to lend its expertise on elections to village elections. And we have stayed in China and stayed involved in China at the request of the Chinese. Where this country is going politically is a far more difficult question to answer than where it has come economically, momentous as those changes have been. And you know, when the Soviet Union fell apart, the Chinese complained, and they still complain, that Mikhail Gorbachev did glasnost, freedom, political freedoms, before he adequately did perestroika, economic reforms. And this debate rages around the world. I come from South Africa, and Harvard professors were telling the South Africans in 1990 that you've got to do perestroika, you've got to reform your economy before you can afford the luxury of political freedoms. And Nelson Mandela and Frederick de Klerk said, no, no, we haven't got time. We have to go first with Glasnost. The Chinese are struggling with this question today mightily. And one of the questions is, where is that process moving? Related to that process, which I think Mary Brown Bullock will, 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 will focus initially on that central question, but related very much to it is China's interplay of foreign and domestic policy. And, and Fei Li can talk about Chinese foreign policy because that's his expertise and the interplay. But there's also the question of what the U.S. can or should do, if anything, to try to affect that. And Yahweh Lu, as a professor at Perimeter College and director of our China program, has spent many years thinking hard about what he describes as perhaps the clash of civilizations. How do we avoid misunderstandings between the two great powers, the two greatest powers in the world, arguably. As the center of the world has shifted to Asia, we will center our attention more and more on this problem. And I think it might be best to start off with Mary Brown Bullock. Let me just add by way of biography that Mary is best known to the folks in Atlanta probably as the former president of Agnes Scott College, the seventh president of Agnes Scott College. For those uh, um, who lived in New York in the 1970s, she was known as a pioneer in opening pathways of communication 
between China and the United States as head of the U.S. Committee on Scholarly Relations between the U.S. and the, China, US and the Chinese. And after she left the U.S. Committee, she went to the Woodrow Wilson uh, Center in Washington, D.C., where she was head of their Asia program for several years before becoming a college president. And she's now a professor of history at, uh, at, at, at uh, Emory University. Fei-Ling Wang, I'll just say a word or two about Fei-Ling and, and uh, Yahweh before I turn it over to Mary. Um, Fei-Li has uh, been an expert on uh, China's international, uh, international role for many years, teaching at the U.S. Military Academy before he joined the Sam Nunn Center here uh, in Atlanta, and is continuing to um, publish greatly and widely on the changing foreign policy priorities and attitudes of China, a subject of great interest to the Carter Center because of China's role in the other regions we work and uh, Latin America and Asia and uh, Africa. And uh, Yahweh Liu, uh, who retains his professorship, uh, has specialized on local elections and has edited two books in a Chinese series on the local political dynamics in China and informs our evolving strategy in China, which the Carter Center has begun on village elections, but Yahweh Liu and John Hardman, our president, who is in the audience down front, was in China just a couple of weeks ago, trying to think through how the Carter Center would relate to the kind of challenges facing China in its, um, in its evolving uh, a political reform effort. So it's very much a village-based uh, program that the Carter Center has focused on and will continue to focus on. But I've already spoken perhaps too long by way of introduction, so at the context of this conversation, Murray will say a few words, uh, opening it up, and then invite comments and criticism from our two other colleagues. So thank you again for coming, and I will now turn the floor over to Mary Brown Bullock. Thank you, John, and it's wonderful to be here at the Carter Center. I can't think of a more appropriate place to really talk about uh, political reforms in China, democratization in China, uh, Carter Center has certainly been a leader around the world uh, in promoting the importance of elections and its pioneering work uh, led by Yahweh and others here uh, in village elections. But John has urged us to be a little bit provocative tonight uh, and to start a lively conversation. And so I am glad you used the word that the subject under discussion is the political reform in China when actually it was announced as prospects for democratization in China. And I, was, I want to lead off by saying that I am always a little uncomfortable in talking about prospects for democratization in China. And I think there is a lot of difference, and I'm going to throw this out to my colleagues, between a discussion about democratization and a conversation about political reform. Americans have been talking about democratizing China for two centuries. And we have thus far not had very good success in this. Uh, if you look back in history, you will see that we often sabotaged our own efforts. Uh, when we talk about democratization, what I think about, and I'm a historian, not a political scientist, but I think about a pluralistic political system uh, perhaps multi-parties, but certainly a pluralistic political system. You think about a system of laws that is respected and obeyed, and you also think about a, an election process that is fair, efficient, 
and is uh, a national in process and is transparent. I myself, and I suspect my colleagues here, but I'm going to let them speak for themselves, I don't think China is moving towards a democracy anytime soon. If we look at democratization and we're defining it in those terms, which are very much the uh, Western American and also European approach, I think we learn more about what's happening in China politically if we use the term that John used, <clears throat> which is political reform. If we take the Chinese system where it is or has been and look at the elements of change within it and then talk about what does that look like, what does that mean? Because I think, John, you're right in juxtaposing this with the Soviet change in which Glasnost came very quickly the opening up of freedoms and of democracy. And uh, we see now some of the problems that that, was, uh, that has, process has been incomplete. In China, you might say we've had a, a rather long drawn out, if we take the reform period, we've had a long drawn out series of political change uh, that has been fairly significant. If you look at the difference in the political system, of uh, 1978, and if you look at it today, 30 years later, even though it is still under a single party, and there are very few challenging the authority of that party, and yet the morphing of the party and many different changes in China have made it a, a system that is more accountable to its people, uh, still very incomplete. And so I think part of what we want to talk about tonight is what, when we talk about political change, political reform, democracy, what are we really looking for? Are we looking for structures? Are we looking for better governance? Uh, and how can we have that debate in a way that takes China as it is and understands what may really be happening in a really quite a fascinating political system in China today? So I will pass it on to whoever is to follow me. William, would you like to uh, okay. take a shot at that? And by the way, I should say that the cards being passed out allow you to write questions if you haven't already done so, and we'll give it to some of the staff and bring it up, and we'll take those later in the program. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> thank you, John. And um, likewise, it's really a great pleasure for me to, to be here in, in Carter Center, a very important place, uh, actually, in the history of uh, uh, U.S.-China uh, relationship. Uh, this, uh, this is the place we commemorate the, the president that actually signed the, um, uh, the agreement with the Chinese to reopen uh, diplomatic relations with uh, the People's Republic of China almost 30 years ago. Um, and also, uh, Carter Center is also one of the very, very few uh, American organizations directly involved in effort of uh, facilitating some political changes in China, that is, uh, village elections. I understand they actually have been uh, now listed in some categories, uh, hopefully that will be a kind of a, a phenomenon that will pass. So hopefully Carter Center will go back uh, with full uh, steam to help uh, the Chinese to change their political system again. Um, Zhang asked us to be uh, as controversial, as, uh, as uh, provocative as possible. Uh, well, in that spirit, let me uh, throw out a few points that I think may or may not be uh, agreeable by uh, either Mary or Yahweh. Uh, so we're going to have a, a little fight here on the stage. And so you're going uh, uh, to be in for a nice show. Um, well, 
I, I agree uh, what Mary has already categorized in terms of how to see the Chinese political uh, change, whether the Chinese are heading into a Western or American style of political democracy, plural democracy, um, with the kind of system we know uh, that has been in existence in the West, primarily in the United States also for uh, you know, a couple hundred years, or whether the Chinese uh, political reform is something entirely a different kind of uh, uh, animal, a different kind of uh, uh, situation. I actually tend to believe that uh, um, humankind have really, uh, human beings have tried to experiment with all kinds of political systems, and so far, the best we can identify, or best we can really know for sure, is the kind of, uh, arguably, the Western American-style political democracy, plural, plural system, uh, the nasty fights between two parties, for example, uh, the, the briberies and the backstabbing involved in elections, and so on and so forth. Those things are ugly and bloody and wasteful, but uh, so far, based on my knowledge, uh, this actually is actually not a perfect system by, no, uh, by, by all means, but it is kind of system that actually should apply to all cultures and all humankind as long as we have the same kind of biological uh, blueprints. Uh, so in other words, the future of China, in my personal opinion, I don't know when, it's going to, it's going to head in that direction if not entirely a blue, uh, a carbon copy of American system, but the essential components of the future of the Chinese political system should be roughly the same as now we have in the so-called advanced countries like the United States and Western Europe and Japan. So I actually believe, and, and I can say this with great uh, degree of confidence, most Chinese elites also believe, uh, many Chinese elites, I shall say, also believe in the universal value of uh, the values of democracy and the human rights and the rule of law. Uh, and then, having said that, and I think Mary is also right that uh, um, Chinese democratization is by no means guaranteed. You know, we don't really know when it will start, really start, and when it will be successful, or will it be successful at all in our lifetime or the lifetime of our children. You know, we don't really know. Uh, but uh, a slight different from Mary, here comes the provocative part, the fighting spirit. Um, I actually uh, remain a little cautiously uh, optimistic about the prospect of democratization in China. Because I see the Chinese society has changed greatly in the past two decades, thanks to the uh, market-oriented economic reform. The Chinese society has diversified a great deal. Uh, today in China, you actually can find uh, various, all kinds of elements of uh, of a culture, of a deviation, a deviated lifestyle, if you will, that are typical in a plural democracy. Uh, actually, sometimes actually pushed to very extreme uh, to, in many ways. The Chinese economy, as you all know, has been experiencing explosive growth, tremendously large. And so therefore, I do have a lot of hope that the Chinese, based on their own needs, for their own interest, will search for a governance structure that's much better than the system they have inherited from Mao Zedong, from Deng Xiaoping, or from imperial Chinese history. Uh, that is, they will have inner drives for democracy in, in China, and conditions are getting ready for that as well. And secondly, I'm very hopeful in the sense that today's China is very different from the Soviet Union 20 years ago, 15 years ago. In the sense, today's Chinese economy is very open. 
And the Chinese society is much more open than, say, Soviet society before Gorbachev. Uh, there is a tremendous external pressure or external incentive structure or external uh, help, if you will, that are facilitating the Chinese political transformation. By no means, again, uh, headed in the direction of a Western-style democracy, but nonetheless is making Chinese political transformation almost uh, inevitable or unbearable kind of pressure on the Chinese leaders. Um, and, and thirdly, and lastly, uh, I just finished this point, and uh, I, I will pass it on to Yahweh to correct all the mistakes I've made. Because um, he sits so close to me, I don't want to fight him. <laughs> um, the third point I want to make is I think the Chinese leaders, uh, the current leadership, or current top leaders are actually uh, still trying to uh, utilize the traditional tools that have been passed upon to them by Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and others so to govern China. But the current leadership is inherently uh, weak and unable to rule China as Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping simply because the current leadership are there, not because they have won a big war or they have killed millions, I mean, how nasty it is. Uh, in other words, the legitimacy of their leadership is kind of a weak and also is constantly challenged and questioned. So therefore, today's Chinese political system can be better categorized as a corporatist system in which that it requires some kind of a negotiation, horse trading, and also uh, dialogue, if you will, uh, behind closed doors right now, among a sizable group of people. It could be a few dozen, could be as many as 400, because that's the number of the people that were involved in the nomination of the recent leadership in the party congress last year. So that means the current leadership itself is ready for some kind of a plural, diversifying political politicking inside. And that, to me, is a great way to start what I call elite democracy in China through in, inside party democracy. In other words, the party may still be the only party in charge, but the party effectively is going to develop various internal factions, and those factions are going to fight for rules and for power transitional procedures and for uh, some kind of uh, due processes. That, to me, is probably a very reliable way for some real democracy to develop, arguably at a very small scale, only for a few privileged, a few kind of uh, uh, elderly people who have all have their hair dyed in pitch black, and that's fine. But the process will start, and as long as it's meaningful, it take hold over time. If everything goes well, uh, you know, we don't know whether everything's going to go, to go well or not, but if everything goes well, this kind of a small-scale internal elite democracy will take hold, will start the, the great process uh, uh, down the road. Um, that's all I'm going to say now. Thank you. So it's my turn now. Uh, I'm going to start uh, disagreeing with everybody uh, on the stage. Uh, I disagree with John because he said we're brilliant, uh, we're knowledgeable. We might be knowledgeable, but certainly we're not uh, brilliant in terms of predicting uh, what is going to be the prospect of political reform or democracy in China. I disagree with Mary because she said China never, ever is going to be democratic. And uh, I agree with feeling... Well, so China is not going to be democratic anytime soon, anytime soon. Uh, and Feiling is cautiously uh, optimistic, and particularly I disagree with Feiling on one point. He said 
uh, most of the Chinese scholars believe there are universal values that should be held uh, by the Chinese government. So what I want to share with you is uh, the fear uh, of maybe not uh, most of the Chinese scholars, but a very small uh, but very influential and vocal group, and they are backed by the government, which means they're backed by the power holders. They're also backed by the rich people who benefited from economic reform, which means they're backed by money. And this group of people basically raised the specter that uh, democracy, particularly Western-style democracy, is a tool used by the Western countries, led by the United States, to marginalize China, to destabilize China, and to eventually destroy China. Uh, so they basically take the Western-style or American democracy to task by saying uh, democracy does not work. If you look at what happened in Kenya, and there are lots of articles being written by these scholars saying, you know, Kenyans wanted to have democracy, but it doesn't work. See what it led to. It led to chaos. It led to violence. And John talked about perestroika and glasnost, and they used Soviet Union as a perfect example of why perestroika did not work because it led to territorial disintegration. You know, the whole evil empire collapsed as a result of introducing elections and other democratic measures. Also, China used India. These scholars use India as an example, saying India is the largest democracy under the sun. For 50 years, you know, Indian government has never been able to resolve developmental issues to feed their people. So that kind of democracy does not work. And we Chinese, we have already developed a new kind of democracy, and they label that as Beijing consensus. I want to mention this because this is China's decision, you know, or reluctance in launching political reform uh, has not only frustrated uh, the Chinese people themselves, but also made the neighboring countries and regions very nervous. You know, China actually is surrounded by democracies. You know, India is a democracy, Japan is a democracy, South Korea is a democracy, Pakistan, I guess, is moving toward that direction, Bangladesh is a democracy, Taiwan, of course, you know, Taiwan's democracy is, you know, the most threatening, probably, uh, to the Chinese leaders, you know, how are you going to deal with this? So they're trying to say, you know, that kind of democracy never really does work. And our model, you know, we, we want to have a market economy, but a different kind of political system is going to work. Look at what happened in the past 30 years. You know, we were able to achieve what Fading mentioned, the enormous, you know, economic growth. You know, John said that China is one of the largest credit holders of American debts. So how are you going to deal with this? But it made Americans also concerned and worried. I want to end my presentation here just by quoting Jim Mann, you know, who used to be a Los Angeles Times reporter. And he wrote an op-ed for Washington Post last year in July, and it's titled, A Shiny Model of Wealth Without Liberty. So this is what he wrote. He said, armed with economic success and the failure of U.S foreign policy that emphasizes military power and ties the spread of democracy to the use of force. China's economic miracle is turning into an appealing political model and a startling new challenge to the future of liberal democracy. Therefore, we should approach China through the lens of our national interest. 
That includes not just security and prosperity, but our interest in the world with open political systems and the freedom to dissent. If we don't take China's new model as seriously as the rest of the world does, we could find that we are on, we're the ones on the wrong side of history. So the question is, will there be a confrontation between China and the United States? Because US, the so-called Washington model, is market economy, liberal democracy. China is market economy, but a more rigid political system. So not only we're fighting for economic interest, financial interest, we're also fighting for moral higher ground. So is there going to be a repeat of the Cold War? You know, is there going to be what Sam Huntington said, you know, a clash of civilizations that will be beyond the control of the people here and people elsewhere? So I'll just leave you with the questions. Hopefully we'll be able to have a very enlightening and informative uh, conversations. Thanks. We, thank you very much, Xiaowei. Those of you who have been to conversations before know that the first part of the program is a bit more of a conversation among the panelists, uh, um, centralized democracy, is that right? You, you said failing beforehand. Uh, before we turn it open to the, to, to, to the audience, and we already have some questions that have, have arrived. I can't resist asking about the dynamics within China and to get you to talk a bit more, all of you, uh, on that because disasters happen at the margin when you allow things, pressure to build up and you don't find an easy transition. We're all talking about what kind of a transition, how fast. Americans have watched with fascination the Chinese celebrating their engagement in the global system, symbolized by their hosting of the Olympic Games. Yahweh said the other day the Chinese leaders may regret having gone down the road of opening the door to the Olympic Games because it's brought a lot of protests from very prominent entertainers on Darfur. The Tibet insurgency may be in some ways linked to the moment of prominence surrounding the Olympic Games. Who gets to be part of the decisions in China? And who are the stakeholders likely to be in the coming years that would allow for this evolution to continue so that Mary's sense of the change happening many years from now and Feiling's thinking maybe more recently, give us a sense of the dynamic. Where do you think the pressure points are right now? Maybe I could say a word. Um, I actually agree with Feiling and have a fairly optimistic view of the changes, political changes that are taking place in China, and I disagree with the Chinese position uh, or the uh, uh, the position that these systems are going to be politically so different that they have to challenge each other. And so I wanted to say that right away. But in terms of the process, I think one thing we have not talked about are some of the legal changes in China, which have been quite phenomenal in terms of developing a system of law, uh, developing a judiciary, developing uh, modern legal schools that have uh, their graduates have graduated from American and British uh, law schools, have gone back to be deans and are teaching law in fairly recognizable ways in China. I was amazed that when I was in Jiangxi province a year ago, Jiangxi is a poor province in China. I was not even in the capital. And uh, we were approaching the main city and there was this huge replica of the United States Capitol, gleaming white, maybe a third of the size, a huge building. 
and I asked what it was, and I was told, this is the court building. Now, I, I started to say, You're, you've got the wrong building. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> it should be the Supreme Court. Uh, but, and they told me that there were a number of such buildings in China. Now, it is not that that court is, at this point, a fully independent court. Uh, it does not have the separation of powers that we have in the United States. It's not as separate from the Chinese Communist Party. In many of its decisions, it is, and it enacts them and goes about uh, its regular workings. But it does come under the supervision of the party. Uh, but I think this is an area if you, which is fairly dynamic. Uh, there's a huge amount of international attention to these law cases. We have a, right now, this week, uh, a very well-known dissident on trial. And that is, it is going to be interesting to watch how that goes and how the Chinese handle that particular case. I think one can imagine, uh, faster than China becoming a multi-party system, I can imagine that judicial system becoming more independent uh, with some division away from the party. I don't know whether my colleagues would agree. But that's the kind of incremental change that I think we're beginning to see some of. And I think it's, you look in those spots. Also, the legal area is, of course, where there are the greatest challenges. So it's, it, it cuts both ways. But what you have is a Chinese people, whether they're in rural areas or in townships, that have become what social scientists call rights consciousness. They have now been educated in the Chinese constitution and in many of the Chinese laws, which provide them many rights. And they are claiming those rights in protest. These are not random protests. These are very specific protests in which they are claiming their rights. So I think the legal area is one where there's really a clash. On the other hand, there's a structure in place that might well evolve. Okay, I just want to follow up um, what Mary had just talked about in terms of legal development in China. I agree that the uh, Chinese um, sense of rights and also Chinese sense of uh, suing each other, a very American idea, um, is uh, catching on. Uh, and and, and um, indeed, there have been uh, recent cases where the regular citizens, normal citizens, actually sue the governments. Of course, the odds is not usually uh, on their side, but there have been cases uh, of that. Uh, and some people have sued on fundamental, uh, about fundamental policy issues, like the household registration system, the college uh, admission system, the family planning system, so on and so forth. Some of the fundamental important policies of the country, of the state, have been uh, sued by people in the court. Of course, they're all thrown out. Uh, they will not even go to trial, but still, that's the beginning. But I, uh, I, I want to also uh, highlight a little bit here the difference between uh, the development of a legal system in China, which is understood by most scholars as a system called rule by law, or the Chinese vision of having a legal system, which can be summarized as rule by law, whereas the very important pillar to support a true democracy or a true sustainable rational governance structure is a system called rule of law. Uh, there's just one little difference in the two English words there, but it's a, it's a, it's a great difference. The Chinese ideas of having a legal system, or making laws, or promoting a, a, a rule of uh, rule by law, is actually uh, rule by law is the highest ideal the Chinese leaders have been entertaining so far. That actually is the goal. 
rule of law for the most Chinese for 2,000 plus years, rule of law has always been an alien concept. What do you mean rule by a rule of law? Like everybody's under law. What about the king? What about the emperor? What about our great leader? You know, what about uh, the chairman, right? So rule of law is a concept that still is very slowly uh, growing in China. Most Chinese people will be very happy with rule by law. But rule by law does not mean democracy. Here we, we can see a kind of a contrast of two concepts, democracy versus uh, order and rights versus effectiveness. In a place called Hong Kong, where we have a very good system called rule by law or rule of law, where the business of tycoons really enjoy the system. That system protects property rights very well and also protects uh, the rights of free speech uh, to a great extent. But the Hong Kong business tycoons, with almost no exception, they're all very strongly anti-democracy. Why? Democracy gives ordinary folks, give the poor people, give the workers the right to sue and the right to demonstrate and the right to organize, the right to lobby and the right to organize a party and win offices. And these are the things that the leaders don't want to, uh, to have. So my understanding is that ideas uh, and also the efforts in today's PRC in the areas of legal development are still pretty much in the realm of rule by law, by no means rule of law. And so therefore, what they are trying to get is to uh, cater to the needs of the new rich, the middle class, to protect their rights, the property rights to some extent, in exchange, give them the order give them all that they want, give them the effectiveness of one. That precisely explains what Yahweh was talking about. The Chinese elites, especially the so-called Chinese middle class, today actually are dead set primarily against uh, democracy, or at least mass democracy, for a very simple reason. Why? 75%, 70-75% of Chinese people are categorized as rural peasants. Those are basically second-class citizens, right? And what do you mean by sharing rights with them from urban privileged uh, middle-class point of view? There's just no start, non-start. So they want is rule by law, and also a corporatist authoritarian regime will just serve them fine. Uh, so that's where we, we have to uh, see the limit of the um, development of Chinese legal system. And also, this is where we start to see uh, probably uh, the power holders in today's China. As John was asking, who are holding the power? Obviously, it is the authoritarian leaders that are catering into the middle class. Well, Thielen, thank you. Thank you. It leads me to want to ask Yahweh to, to, to join in a and draw a little bit on his experience at the local level, because there are 650,000 villages in China, and you've seen a lot of them during the election uh, work that you've done for the Carter Center over, over 10 years. And the rising demands at the grassroots level, does the state have the capacity to manage those uh, rising demands? Yes, certainly that's one of the pressuring points that uh, you, you mentioned. I'll just give you some examples, because I think, uh, first of all, uh, for China to democratize, that has to be a top-down process. You know, without the leader saying, this is okay you know, to democratize, like the economic reform that happened 30 years ago. Had it not been for Deng Xiaoping in that position, nothing is going to happen. Although the leadership would always say, oh yeah, it was started by a village in Anhui province. You know, they started distributing land without uh, authorization. So again, you know, without a leader, you know, the current leader, Hu Jintao, we don't know. Uh, the next leader, Xi Jinping, you know, whether he will say, you know, I'll give you the marching order you know, to start democratization, we don't know. However, the people at the bottom, you know, there is the growing uh, awareness by the people that they're taxpayers. And as taxpayers, you know, 
they need to be represented. It's uh, you know, as old this whole tradition is as old as the United States. You know, uh, representation and taxation. Uh, a few examples. Uh, in 2005, when Katrina happened here, uh, in in the United States, uh, the Chinese media had a basically a field day saying, look, democracy didn't work. See how the United States responded so poorly you know, to a natural disaster. And this time, uh, the snowstorm that happened in China uh, in January and February, you know, closing to the spring festival, and the media was very quiet. You know, they no longer uh, would say anything about you know, US is not responsible because the government way of dealing that, uh, the whole half of the country shut down. And, you know, uh, Premier Wen Jiabao had to go to the railway station in Guangzhou and basically to tell people that, I'm sorry, you know, I apologize, but I'll try to get you home to celebrate the Spring Festival. So there is this pressure on the government because of the lack of information, lack of transparency. There are two other uh, examples that will highlight the growing, I guess we can say, aggressiveness or this demand to participate uh, in the political process or to intervene in the decision implementation. The government already made a decision. The government wanted to do it, but then people started uh, fighting against it. One is this huge chemical plant that was supposed to be built in Xiamen. This is right across from Taiwan. And people use simple technology like a cell phone. And you know, everyone received a message saying, uh, tomorrow, let's go take a walk. You know, nothing political. We're only going to take a walk at 6.30. So tens of thousands of people took a walk, and the government got a message. You know, they were not happy about that chemical plant because that could be a huge source of pollution. Uh, another incident is Shanghai. Shanghai is going to hold the two, 2010 International Fair. So they want to extend the maglev train, uh, you know, a few kilometers longer. And then the citizens just took to the streets. And the mayor uh, in Beijing, while he was attending the National People's Congress, he basically said no decision. Uh, was yet to be made uh, building that train line. Actually, they already made a decision. They wanted to build it, but they faced populist, popular resistance. They were not able to do it. You know, same thing, of course, happened in the countryside, but not as vocal and as uh, more participatory as in the, in the urban centers. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your feelings that the Chinese government can deliver social services to the um, millions of people who are now uh, ranging around the country without the benefits. We're in a political campaign here where we're talking about whether the government is going to be able to take care of our social security. That's a communist state which doesn't seem to be taking care of the social security of large, large um, uh, numbers of, of, of Chinese people who have been cut loose from the land. Um, give us a little flavor looking out over the next five or six years where you see um, the landless uh, problem going and uh, how much of uh, of 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 a issue should this be for outsiders to worry about who or who share a concern with China's uh, uh, peaceful transition? All right, um, let me take a first crack at it. Uh, I think the um, the understanding by the Chinese um, economy and also um, social uh, welfare uh, system uh, outside of China is uh, generally very inadequate and often inaccurate. Simply because, for example, when we talk about unemployment rate, we're talking about unemployment in the United States or in the state of Georgia. In China, when they talk about unemployment rate, they're only referring to the unemployment rate for about a quarter of the population. That's the urban population. The rural population is left out. 
How many people are unemployed in the countryside? Nobody knows. How many people are there anyway? Nobody knows, right? And that's the situation. That's, that's truly uh, the fact. Well, only recently, some of the uh, able ones in the countryside start to take their own fate in their own hands by migrating around. It's called migrant workers. And migrant workers are truly second-class workers in China uh, by all definitions. And they are in the neighborhood of 100 million plus people. Those are workers, not, not you know, population, because combined with their family members, you're talking about several hundred millions of people. They are clearly categorized as you know, sort of a lower class workers uh, in the Chinese booming economy. And their um, uh, rights uh, are very poorly protected. And uh, the government had been trying, and to the credit of the current administration, Wenjiabao's government, they've been trying to provide some kind of minimum support to make sure not too many people are going to be wandering on the street and, uh, you know, and bothering foreign tourists. Uh, they are trying to do that. But the effort so far has not been very effective simply because of magnitude, because the size of the population uh, that are uh, in need for help, and also because the very twisted priority of uh, government spending. Uh, the Chinese may officially call themselves a socialist country, uh, the party is still bearing the name of communist, but compared to the United States, if we compare these two countries, United States is clearly by far a socialist country compared to China uh, in many, many ways. And uh, so that's what we call international cross-dressing. You know? Here's a, a capitalist society uh, really behaves like a socialist country, and a so-called socialist country behaves like a very raw, crow. Uh, a, crowd, uh, a very raw capitalist society like the one described by Charles Dickens in 19th century England. That's the kind of uh, system you, you have. The government is trying, but it seems to be very, very inadequate. So therefore, you have these riots uh, or uh, incidents, as they, they say. The migrant workers, the, uh, the uh, landless peasants, and also even the disgruntled urban uh, uh, residents, they are engaging in all kinds of riots, all kinds of incidents, like this walking, spontaneous walking. We're all just walking on the street, you know, sort of blocking traffic, and uh, things like that. And they are happening in, uh, in the numbers of uh, tens of thousands every year. That was reported, uh, we know. And sometimes uh, people's uh, grievances and people's unhappiness are on a boiling point, and they are doing senseless things, like just beating up any uh, traffic cops, for example, right, just to relieve the pressure. Uh, that is, uh, uh, of course, a great pressure, if you will, to push the Chinese government to give the people a little rights and let them to address their grievances, not necessarily through uh, anti-social, anti-government actions, but go to the court, for example. And that would be another way to start a kind of spontaneous uh, democratization, uh, if you will. Uh, and I agree with Yahweh, definitely. Chinese democracy uh, should be handed down from the top because that's efficient and effective. But if it's coming too late, then nobody knows, and that's a danger of explosion or implosion. Chinese democracy may come from the, from the top, but uh, there are a lot of forces percolating below, and I've been looking at some of the question cards because we started a little late and we're now up to... Uh, uh, about 10 minutes beyond the time when I should be taking questions from the audience, which I will begin to do. And you, I hope you'll have your sympathy because these kind of range and are very specific and, uh, and yet build on the conversation so far. And I'll try to keep that spirit alive of trying to get a sense of where the dynamic within China is, is, um, 
is most evident in ways that would help us as Americans understand how we can have a long-term productive relationship with this great nation of China. One specific question, which was on top of the pile that Deborah Hakes, who I must acknowledge her hard work at organizing much of this uh, uh, event tonight, uh, pr provided me with. It, I want to direct it to, to Yahweh because um, it, it is in, this, in an area he knows very well. It's about the internet in China. The question was, I read recently that over 200 million Chinese are internet users and another 6 million log on each month. Uh, there is a government censorship of the uh, internet. Uh, how important is technology in terms of democratization in China? I just read that China Mobile has 360 million customers and hopes to grow 80 million next year. You can't control that, can you, Yahweh? Certainly you cannot uh, control technology, only to a certain extent. I want to start this uh, sharing with you my intern who is sitting right in the front row, uh, Jens, uh, and he came to me, he said, I was trying to, because we run a website in China, he was trying to upload an article, and that article has the name Dalai Lama. So once he uploaded the article to the server, which is in China, it froze the website. So he tried it again, it froze. And I ran into the same problem last night. I thought it was just you know, our server or it's the internet. And now I realized actually it's, there's, there must be a very sophisticated filtering uh, that you know, once they decide you know, this word, you know, like Tibetan riots or His Holiness Dalai Lama, these are sensitive words, then you won't be able to browse a website or you know, it contains that it won't go through. So you know there, there is technology over here, but you know this technology can always be bypassed because uh, there are software that you can bypass the so-called great firewall of the internet and use proxy servers uh, to go online. You know the cell phone itself is also filtered. So if you put in certain sensitive words like Chen Shui-bian, uh, you know the current president in Taiwan, if you put it in your cell phone, you try to send a message, the message will never be sent. It will be automatically blocked and certain other sensitive words. So, you know, there, there is these sort of attempts to control the flow of information, but uh, we have already reached a, a time that that control is no longer possible. It cannot be omnipotent. You know, it, the, the whole thing is totally percolated. And uh, so that, I guess, is, is the question. And the internet has become a very important tool for people to fight against injustice, to organize, to mobilize and to pressure the government to be more responsive. By the way, we have a website, ChinaElections.org, which Yahweh is the director of. If you want to keep track of what's happening in this debate, you can check on ChinaElections.org. Can I add to that? Uh, add to that uh, internet issue, uh, question? Yes, sir. Uh, if you want to know more about the current status of uh, Chinese control of the internet, uh, the so-called Chinese Great Firewall, um, there's a very interesting, uh, very long, uh, very detailed report uh, in the current issue or most recent issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, you can take a look and it details how that control is done and how effective it is, as Yahweh is describing, and, uh, and how uh, effective it is politically, not necessarily technologically, because technologically you can always get a run of it. But as long as you can block enough people or deter enough people, it serves the purpose very well. So the Chinese Great Firewall now is considered to be the most successful ever uh, media control or uh, communication control mechanism in the world. Uh, biggest, uh, the most successful of all. 
And they may be exporting this to some of the autocratic governments in the rest of the world that's that are right. of interest to the yeah. Carter this Center. Is, so there are dimensions to this that we're all worried about. But I want to change gears. New investment project. You know, you I, I know there's plenty of thesis <laughs> topics here. At least the students know that this evening is not, uh, not uh, is well spent because you'll get a lot of good ideas for your master's and, and thesis and PhDs. Let me ask Mary um, Brown-Bullock a question, which I think um, she can address. It came from one of the audience who wanted to know is that um, how likely is it that China will openly acknowledge and address its HIV-AIDS problem? Mary is chairman of the uh, China Medical Board, among many other responsibilities she has. I'm not sure you've done a lot with HIV-AIDS, Mary, but do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Uh, until um, maybe five years ago, China was very reluctant uh, to announce very much about HIV-AIDS, but that situation has changed significantly. And you now have a very public attention in the Ministry of Health and in many of the medical schools and many of the locales about HIV AIDS. But it is still not as openly dealt with in this country and part of it appears to be uh, still an element of control. Let me give you an example. I was in the same trip that I went to Jiangxi province. I went to a rural um, health station and looked at the three different, the three levels of health care uh, in China in the rural area and then we met back at the county level uh, with the county leadership and some of the people from the township and from the village and I asked at one point uh, how many cases of HIV AIDS do you have I got I got the immediate answer two cases you know it was as though they were primed for an answer that you had to have you knew you had to have a few and that they were fully identified, uh, but it was, it was just too automatic and it seemed too pat. On the other hand, there are um, organizations, scientists working on HIV AIDS. Uh, the Gates Foundation has a very active program today in China on HIV AIDS. Um, one of the problems that uh, the China Medical Board that I serve, that I chair, learned about, and this was about, again, about five, a little over five years ago, was that there was a problem of instruction that medical students were afraid of HIV AIDS. And if your medical students exhibited such fear, how could you possibly educate the population? And so there was a big project that we became involved with in producing textbooks uh, that would be used at multiple levels. So uh, you also have a specialist here in the audience, medical specialist, John Hardman, would also know a lot about that. But I would say the situation has changed. They report more honestly, more openly. It's a subject of, of research today. Healthcare will be a major uh, responsibility. I don't know if you want to add anything further, uh, Yahweh, to Mary's comments because of our growing interest in the Carter Center on healthcare in China. Uh, during our recent trip to China, uh, we at one of the meetings, a Ministry of Health official told us that on the national sort of disease eradication platform, uh, the Chinese government is going to deal with four major diseases. On top of that is AIDS and HIV. Uh, second is TB. Third is malaria. And fourth is uh, schistomyces. So, you know, they identify these four as being the most threatening to the health uh, of the people. And failing talk about uh, the delivery of services, I just want to give you a little figure highlighting how the Chinese government has failed to provide health care to the people. You know, here in the United States, we talk about 40 million Americans not insured, not, does not, that do not have health insurance. In China, we were told this time by the scholars that 80 percent 
of the Chinese population does not have real meaningful healthcare insurance. And China has a population of 1.3 billion. So you can calculate how many Chinese are not covered by meaningful health insurance. And you know, talking about a socialist country, a party whose mission is to serve the people, and you have failed so miserably uh, you know, to provide sufficient care, particularly for 900 million uh, farmers. 200 million of them probably are in the cities, and once they're in the cities, you know, they don't have equal access to education, to housing, and, and to healthcare. And Feiling just wrote a book about that uh, uh, hookless, you know, group. You know, they move into the cities, but you know, they're second-class citizens. You know, uh, they're in the cities like people, like illegal aliens here in, in this country. You know, they don't have associate much, much, much worse. worse. They don't have a social security number, so their children won't be able to go to school unless they pay a very hefty amount of money when they go to see a doctor emergency, you have to pay upfront. If you don't pay, then you don't get your operation, you don't get uh, your treatment. And uh, of course, you know, unless you can afford to buy a house, then you know, of course they're not you know, rich enough to buy a house, so they live in sort of like slum kind of uh, neighborhood you know, to, to pass along. So uh, this current government, I think since 2003, started this so-called people-focused uh, strategy. You know, they sort of are moving away from a GDP growth-focused uh, national policy uh, to realize that you know, there is popular anger and frustration. And the other day, uh, you know, when I listened to Chinese uh, premier at the press conference, he basically said this year will be the most difficult uh, for the Chinese government because of inflation. You know, when people cannot afford to buy grocery to feed themselves, then that anger against the government is going to grow. And any little event like what happened in Tibet could trigger a snowballing uh, effect, a chain reaction, and that can escalate into a national crisis. And with the games uh, in August, you know, it seems to all the, you know, there, there is this maybe a tipping point, uh, you know, taking place in China. So it does take a lot of courage, vision, and skill for the top Chinese leadership now to carefully uh, evaluate the situation and do things in the right way so China can really, you know, go through this year, you know, without major events. While you've mentioned Tibet, several uh, in the audience have asked uh, about your forecasts on how that will be handled. And it does play into American political debate. I remember um, in, in earlier campaigns, there was a lot of discussion about whether we should engage China or not. It hasn't featured yet prominently, but it would be useful if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts uh, uh, of the panel on where you see the Tibet crisis heading and the likely response by the Chinese government um, to scenarios that you could envision as possible. You've been watching the situation, I know, very closely. I think I want to share with you some of the anger or, uh, you know, a lot of Han Chinese, they're very upset about the national uh, government policy toward Tibet. I think this is similar to what uh, Barack Obama said yesterday in his speech. He said, you know, reverse uh, racism, affirmative action. Because uh, if you look at the central government policy toward Tibet, you know, of course, you know, His Holiness Dalai Lama and others saying China has engaged in a cultural genocide <coughs> against the Tibetans. But ordinary Chinese don't think like that. They think 
taxpayers' money, their money has been poured into Tibet, you know, building temples, restoring, renovating their monasteries, and you know, if they take exam, even if they have a failing score, you'll be able to get into colleges and universities, you know, some of the best in the country, and also they're not restricted by the one-child uh, family planning policy. So a lot of Chinese, they're quite upset that the government is treating Tibetans and Uyghurs uh, in the western part of China, sort of, you know, in a, in a very uh, w way that Chinese themselves feel they're discriminated. So that's why you see the report uh, that the government hardline policy toward His Holiness Dalai Lama and the sort of the crackdown or suppression of the rights there has been totally uh, righteous and correct, and they rallied behind uh, the central government. So I, I guess you know uh, another thing I want to sort of contextualize uh, is like uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was killed in 1968. Uh, you know Mao, our great leader at the time, you know wrote an article basically saying this is the beginning of the end of American imperialist system. You know uh, Martin Luther King Jr. You know who is uh, uh, so much for peace was being uh, so violently murdered by the U.S. government. So African Americans and w poor whites, they're all going to rise up. They're going to overthrow the government. And they had a huge rally at the Tiananmen Square. You know, I guess, you know, the Americans looking at what happened in China in 1968, they probably will have a lot of sort of misperceptions or, you know, they feel, what is Chinese government doing? I, I use this uh, as an example, sort of to look back at how Chinese leaders and Chinese people are feeling about this Western sort of emphasis on, you know, Tibet as a paradise being violated, uh, the Chinese government building the railroad simply uh, designed to eliminate the Tibetan culture, you know, to destroy the Tibetan heritage. You know, most of the Chinese don't feel that way, and. Uh, so you know, I just want to contextualize this so, so that you know how majority, I guess majority of the Chinese people feel this way, is that they think uh, the Westerners uh, have an ax to grind over here. They're using Tibet as, again, you know, like using democracy as a tool to undermine China's rights. So that's, you know, I guess, you know, Fading probably has more to, to add to, to, you know, I, well, I just want to contextualize this. Let, let me, the time's not, not uh, unlimited here, and there's another looming issue that's very um, close to the security concerns of Tibet, which is the security concerns of Taiwan. And I know Feiling has written about this, but Mary, you've also followed the One China policy from the very beginning, when it wasn't named, named which China was the One China. And democracy has flourished in Taiwan. Uh, China looks to Taiwan as a part of it, its uh, um, national uh, identity. Are we just going to have this problem kick down the road endlessly, or is there going to be a confrontation over the straits? That was one of the questions that came from the audience. Well, I think as most people know, there's a big election in Taiwan over the weekend. And uh, the likelihood is that uh, the Kuomintang candidate, Ma, will win. But, uh, and, and the Kuomintang would mean? The Kuomintang uh, government, um, which has been out of power for the last four years. The old Chiang Kai-shek. Eight, eight years. Pardon? Eight years. Eight, eight years, excuse right. me, the last eight years. And uh, certainly, if this party comes back into power, it comes back in on more of a platform of better relations with China than the current administration. But even if the 
uh, DPP candidate wins, uh, a more moderate position toward China seems in the offing. And so I think it's a very interesting stage and in which we might look at a very, at Taiwan-China relations playing a very different role in U.S.-China relations than in the past. Several years ago, I saw an article by Nancy Tucker who writes on Taiwan, and the title was, Does the United States Care If Taiwan Reunites uh, with the People's Republic of China? And she raised the question that this was, would not be in our interest from a security viewpoint, and that although we have talked for all these decades uh, since the Shanghai communique about a peaceful reunification, that there actually are strategic issues in the American calculus, particularly since China has grown so rapidly, uh, that Taiwan, the island, has. And so I don't think it's going to go away as an issue but I, at all, but I think that the nature of the relationship may start to change somewhat, and it'll be very interesting to watch. But just to follow up on the discussion about Tibet, Taiwan is also an area in which the Chinese people fully support the Chinese government almost across the board uh, in terms of the importance of Taiwan to the national identity. I used to call it a motherhood and apple pie issue to try to explain why it, it has such a resonance uh, throughout China. But I'd be interested in what you think is going to happen in the election. And, how it will, will play in U.S.-China relations. Well, I think, Mary, you have said um, very well about um, uh, the relationship between uh, Taiwan and, and China and also its implica uh, implications on Sino-American relations. But um, I would say also the United States, um, you're, you're absolutely right, United States uh, does not necessarily uh, want to have uh, united China anytime soon for a variety of reasons, and part of it has to do with our past historical obligations to Taiwan, and part of it has to do with the fact that Taiwan now is a democ democracy, and to abandon democracy seems to be very bad, uh, you know, for a, a world leader to behave. Uh, so therefore, that's the reason. On the other hand, though, Beijing and, and Washington have, in, in recent years, uh, achieved some kind of understanding, if, if you will, to co-manage, if you will, the situation in the strait, in Taiwan Strait, to make sure there is uh, no uh, abrupt changes, no violence, no war. And so therefore, uh, we can keep the status quo. That's the current American uh, policy. And I think Beijing under understand that quite well. And both sides are playing this uh, uh, game uh, in a kind of a tacit, but very effective uh, way to co-manage the situation. What happened down the road? Uh, obviously, nobody can say that uh, uh, the Taiwan's current status quo will be maintained forever because, as Mary pointed out, and also uh, roughly similar to in the case in Tibet, uh, most Chinese, especially Han Chinese people, they have this kind of a very strong uh, desire to see Taiwan uh, be united with mainland China simply because they have attached too much of their personal uh, identity, personal pride, and also their understanding of Chinese history to the issue of Taiwan. For them, this is no longer just a, a piece of territory, uh, a small piece of territory, mind you. It's not too big a territory. And, and it's actually about the identity issue, the Chinese nationhood, uh, and also the history issue. So for them, this, is a, uh, this situation of a status quo can only be temporary. So what's happened down the road? What's going to happen down the road? I have written uh, quite a few pieces on this, and my basic point is very simple. 
in, in a long-term, very long-term interest of the United States, and also in long-term interest of the Chinese, we should encourage a kind of a conditional and peaceful reunification with, with, uh, between China and mainland. And we, have, we should do it uh, as clearly, as firmly as possible. On the one hand, we need to protect these democracies from being destroyed. On the other hand, we need to encourage the democratic Taiwan to play a bigger role in leading the Chinese political transformation. Just imagine if Taiwan tomorrow is conditionally united with China, and what's going to happen? Well, the very uh, open, sometimes nasty Chinese, I mean, uh, Taiwanese journalists are going to be wandering, wandering around in China, right? And the party politics will be duplicated in China. That's a tremendous catalyst. That's a tremendous starting of a democracy in, in China. So I, I'm, I think the status quo is worth preserving, but we have to plan for the long run. And in the long run, we ought to encourage conditional reunification. A conditional in a sense that democracy in Taiwan must be preserved. And only by democratizing China, we have a better future for the Chinese on both sides of the street. Learning to cooperate and work together is, uh, is a long-term and, and, and ongoing proposition on the, across the Taiwan Straits. But what about the rest of the world? There is, in fact, this cover story in The Economist this week about China as a new colonialist. The Carter Center works extensively with governments that are transitioning to democracy in Latin America and Africa. We look with interest at the pressures building up for uh, governments to be more accommodating to their people, and yet the Chinese seem to be operating in many instances without any kind of conditionality because they say they respect the sovereignty and go in and do business. Is there a collision course in third areas? You've all been optimistic about U.S.-China being able to work together bilaterally. What about in the global context? Well, I, I want to okay. just add to what uh, Mary and uh, Feeling just said about uh, you know China, Taiwan, China, Tibet. I, I want to sort of emphasize on one fact: is Tibetans themselves. It seems it, it doesn't matter how well they're treated. You know, they want independence, or they want Han Chinese out of Tibet. Not only Tibet, but also Greater Tibet. Taiwanese, I think, those you know, Taiwanese that are there for generations. It doesn't matter whether China is going to be democratic or not. You know, they don't want to be part of China. I think Feiling wrote an article for Wall Street Journal talking about the eventual unification between Taiwan and mainland China, and that whole factor is democracy. And a lot of Chinese, uh, Taiwanese are very upset, saying, what are you talking about? No, we're not, never going to be part of China. So you, you see, it's, it's sort of there is a similar pattern. It's just like Kosovars. You know, they want independence, you know, no matter what. So you know, this is uh, the challenge. In terms of uh, John's question about uh, China's performance in other parts of the world, I just want to say one thing and then uh, leave the floor to them. Is I think like a year ago, if you say, if you tell a Chinese government official saying, you got to pay attention to what's going on in Darfur, otherwise it's going to be a huge problem for you, they would say, where are you coming from? Are you from the Mars? You know, how could you link Darfur with our games? And now Darfur is daily in Chinese media. You know, of course, the Chinese media is saying, you know, we've been doing so much, you know, to try to prevent the genocide in Darfur. And of course, they're critical of Steven Spielberg. They're critical of Mia Farrow. You know, they're critical of all those people who link Darfur with the genocide. I, I think, you know, in the in a sense, you know, this is a learning curve for for the Chinese leaders, because they think 
you know, we don't intervene in your business. We don't care what kind of government that you have. You know, we need coal, we need oil, we need uh, minerals, we need diamond, you know, so we'll sign all these deals. We also pour money to build roads, to build presidential palaces, to build stadiums, and then in return, we got all these mining contracts. But now I think they realize, that, you know, there are things called universal values or human decency that, you know, you, as a government, you know, you got to take care of. You know, when you loan money to countries, you know, you got to ask them to do certain things to be more transparent uh, so that, you know, the, the international community uh, will support that. Otherwise, you know, you get, you know, look at what is going on now in China on the, on the Darfur issue. Certainly it is eclipsed by what happened in Tibet. But before Tibet, Darfur is like, you know, the fuse, you know, that will lead possibly to even a, a boycott uh, of the games. Marie, would you like to add to that? I just wanted to say that the, it's interesting, the Economist article was actually in the bottom line was fairly positive mm -hmm. about China's role in Africa, and in part because of the learning curve that, uh, that Yahweh described. But one point I'd like to make as a, as a historian here is on this issue of sovereignty. Uh, we uh, are critical of China because it will not get itself involved necessarily in, in some what are, they perceive as the internal issues of Somalia or different countries. And we see it in part because China doesn't want other countries to be involved in their domestic issues, whether it's Tibet or human rights, et cetera. Uh, I think we have to realize that sovereignty for China is a concept that uh, is an old concept, didn't just come out of the People's Republic of China. It does go, I am gonna get a little history in here. Uh, it goes back well into the 19th century in which China itself was experiencing being carved up by the foreign powers. And it was fighting and failed to preserve its own sovereignty as a nation and its territorial integrity. And this is a theme that has run through uh, all Chinese intellectuals, all Chinese governments for about 200 years. And so it is not just an issue of this government uh, being concerned. And, and we should also remember, uh, just from an American viewpoint or a European viewpoint, this was the old Westphalian system that the Chinese never quite got to be a part of. And we've gone beyond the Westphalian system to more of a global system of concern across borders and of the legitimacy and the importance of that, whereas China is still locked into something of its own concern about its own sovereignty and its unwillingness to promote reform or change in some of the countries within, in which it works. Of course, when, when we first knew each other on the, on the scholarly exchange programs and China was just o opening up, China was still thought to be the proponent of global communism, which knew no, which knew no frontiers, right. knew no frontiers and, and, and was, was a global movement, like a religion. But it was a false religion, I think, and yet uh, we are in an age now, we never talked about religion and international affairs in those days, that religion has become everyone's business, at least the freedom of religion. Would you mind saying a word or two about spirituality in China and whether you sense, um, as we have seen in the former Soviet Union, uh, the reemergence of, of uh, faith-based organizations that really uh, carry enormous importance for their societies? Is that possible? 
Um, before I, before I uh, talk about the religion and the spiritual world in China, let me just add one thing to what Yavi and, and Mary talked about, uh, the long-term relationship between U.S. and China, what it means by uh, having such an active Chinese power in far away places place like in Africa. Uh, I think the Chinese want to be rich and strong and respected. Now they are getting there. They are also getting the downside of it that is being scrutinized, scrutinized by international community. Darfur and all other things. And all these criticisms against Chinese behavior in Africa, for example, are just a natural kind of occurrence, I guess, when you are big, uh, when you are powerful, when you are rich, and people start to pick on you and start to pay attention to you. And the Chinese are experiencing that in a painful way because they are, they are poorly prepared for that. And uh, also because their domestic political system is simply different from that of the dominant powers like the United States. Well, as Americans here, you ask yourself a, a very simple question in the long run. If the Chinese suddenly become the biggest power on planet, right, with a, a very different political system at home and very different set of values, are we comfortable with that? Are you going to accept that as a new leader? That's a question that the international community is increasingly raising, and the Chinese leadership feel very increasingly uncomfortable uh, about. And that's the, uh, what is important about Darfur and also now uh, Tibet and others. All right, come back to the spiritual world. Uh, as you know, the Chinese really don't have uh, what we consider a state religion or dominant. Chinese are, by, by and large, highly pragmatic in the sense that to pray to which god. So many Chinese feel pretty comfortable with praying to several gods at the same time. And some major Chinese temples, for example, uh, the Nongshan Shi in Taipei, well, I consider China now, um, and also important temples in Beijing and Shanxi, under the same roof, they would pr pray to different gods at the same time, Confucius, Buddha, Taoist gods and local gods. And, and in Taipei, actually, they also enshrine Confucius, uh, uh, Jesus Christ on, in the same compound. So for them, their attitude, their, their perception about religion is quite different. That doesn't mean that Chinese are not a spiritual people. The Chinese civilization is highly sophisticated, and Chinese have a very normal pursuit of a spiritual life. They also ask the question about where love comes from and what's, ha what's going to be happening after this, of this world. They also ask these kind of philosophical questions. So religion is very appealing to the Chinese. They are very spiritual, but they don't have the kind of a definitive, uh, kind of monoethic, kind of a belief system that are used to many other nations. After the communist, after the dis dissolution of communism, especially Maoist-style communism, uh, there is a kind of revival of all kinds of religious be uh, practice in China. But for the Chinese government, any organized group, make it political, religious, they're all dangerous. So the Chinese government has been trying very, very hard to control them, to suppress them, if you will. So therefore, as long as you register with the Chinese government and get approved, then your church can be legal and feel free to pray to your God and, 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 and read your own Bible. But if your church is not organized by uh, registered with the government, the so-called underground churches, and those will be suppressed. On the ground, not necessarily of anti-religion or anti-Christianity, but on the ground of anti-any unauthorized organization. And that, of course, is a defining feature for any authoritarian regime. That is, no other organization shall exist without my approval. Would either of you like to add anything to that? Because we're getting toward the end of our program. I think so, too. Yahweh, any final uh, comments before we wrap up? Do we up? have questions, or we, we need to... Well, I've them? looked at the questions, and we've covered most of the topics. Some of them are repetitious of what we've already covered, and so I was given a signal by our timekeeper in the front row that reminded me we only had three or four more minutes. 
Uh, and and so, so we'll, I, I, we'll I wanted to make sure that if anyone had any burning last comments from the panel before I gave my offer of thanks. Well, I think you'll find that uh, although we questioned each other, uh, we probably came around to somewhat of the same positions uh, in many ways uh, that the Chinese reform, uh, the political reform process has many challenges. I think, if anything, listening to my colleagues, uh, and, and I'm sure you must think that the, the difficulties and the challenges faced by the Chinese government in trying to make this transition to a more open system of some kind is not going to be easy. I think if there's anything you should take away from this, in my view, is, is that it is going to be a complex process in part because of the complex stage of its own development economically and in this what is proving to be a difficult transition socially perhaps more so than economically from communism uh, to a more open, uh, pluralistic system. Okay, uh, very briefly, uh, I want to uh, talk about three uh, uh, small points. The first one is the Chinese economy has come a long way, the society has changed a great deal, and uh, better has yet to come. In other words, the future, I think, is bright uh, for the Chinese people. The second point I want to mention is the rise of China is by no means guaranteed. There's a great amount of certainty uh, about the future of the rise of China. The Chinese economy could collapse in five years, and the Chinese government could collapse in 10 years, and the Chinese society could experience a huge implosion of some kind. And that, by the way, would be a disaster uh, to the Chinese and also to the world. The third point I want to emphasize is the future of China, or the uh, prospect of the rise of China has a great implication for the United States. A rising China, for example, a new superpower, or even better, a new number one power in the world with a tremendously different political system, a whole host of different values, and uh, will mean a greatly different world for the United States, for Americans. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to fight it? Are we going to follow it? Or are we going to get out of the way? I mean, that's, uh, that's an army slogan, by the way. You lead or follow, get out of the way. And if we cannot lead, can we follow? Or can we get out of the way? We don't really, we cannot really get out of the way because Mars is not habitable yet. You know, we can't go there yet. So, these are three points, uh, three points I want to leave with you. And I want to uh, finally uh, concur with, uh, uh, with Mary, that is political stability in China today is of extreme importance, not, for the Chinese, but not only for the Chinese, but also for the world. But the only sure way to have a long-term uh, political stability is to have a democracy and a rule of law. It's what we call dynamic stability. The current rigid stability in China cannot last forever, and that's where the danger is. I guess I'll close uh, by uh, answering Mary's uh, question. Uh, she asked initially, you know, what China will evolve into, whether it's political reform of democracy. Uh, you know, John said that we're scholars. You know, scholars are supposed to make predictions or to know more. Or, you know, we're also uh, practitioners and we're also project managers. So. Uh, I guess I'll, uh, I'll answer Mary's question in a way saying, what eventually will China evolve? You know, we don't know. Nobody can tell. But I think what FDR uh, said in the 1930s, he said, you know, our country is about four freedoms. I think whatever China is going to do, and failing says, you know, dynamic stability, you have to meet that uh, minimum uh, requirement, and that is the four freedoms. It's uh, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. So, you know, we really, I don't care what system you're going to have, but you have to make your people free from fear and free from one. If you are able to do that and then you have uh, freedom of worship and freedom of press, I think, you know, any system is going to be fine. 
because nobody knows uh, what kind of democratic system, you know, which is messy, can work in a country that big with that uh, vast population, you know, different cultural, economic, social issues. So we have to experiment. You know, Deng Xiaoping, when he started the economic reform 30 years ago, he said, you know, we're crossing the river by touching the stones. Uh, so that's, I guess, is the way China needs to do. But you have to start. If you don't start, what Fading said earlier is, you know, you probably won't be able to maintain that stability, which is not only important for the Chinese but for the entire world. So that's where we are, and you know, we, we're hoping we can help or provide some support for for the beginning of of a meaningful process uh, in in China. It certainly has been a humbling experience to sit here in the presence of these three professors as they have reflected on something that is of concern to all of us. Uh, yes, they are um, experts and uh, uh, they are also uh, good friends and colleagues. I think um, what we can take away from this is that our panelists, and I want to thank them so much for conveying this, uh, have an empathy, an empathy which um, President Carter might call love, an empathy toward um, the people of China and the people of the world, but of course two of our panelists were themselves born in China and are now citizens of the United States and have an empathy and understanding of this country which is so precious because they come with a different perspective and it informs and enriches our lives. Mary Brown Bullock, on the other hand, has spent a lifetime loving and understanding the people, culture, history of China that's really the gateway to a peaceful future, is that human beings who can talk across cultures. I, I joke a bit that the Carter Center is full of uh, planetary patriots, um, in that um, we see our common humanity largely by inspiration of President Carter, who, by the way, was first inspired to get interested in China when he was a very young boy, and he got letters from his uncle, um, uh, Gordy. Uh, who was in the Navy, and then heard about the missionary reports. It's these people-to-people -people contacts, something that Mary helped to facilitate so much in the early days of opening up to China, and that Yahweh and Feili uh, represent in their professional and personal commitments to a better and a more mutually understanding and supportive world. We're in it all together, folks, and the planet's getting smaller and smaller. So if you want to hear how the Carter Center thinks about this in other ways. There's more literature in the lobby. I reiterate, please do visit our, our um, website whenever you get an opportunity. You can read a great interview for any students of Yahweh's in the audience. Be sure you study his interview on our website. And uh, come back and visit us on April 24th when we have our next uh, conversation here at the Carter Center, uh, which will discuss the shortage of healthcare workers in Africa and the Carter Center's efforts to address this, particularly in the in the country of Ethiopia. It just gives you another flavor of our range. Hope to see you again on April 24th, and thank you very, very much for coming, and thank you very much to our panelists. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.